Good morning. It's great to be with you guys uh, this morning. Uh, the message that we're going to be discussing this morning is not the one that I had originally prepared and planned for and practiced. In light of the tragic events that has happened this past Wednesday, all of our pastors across our campuses who are speaking this morning have really put on the shelf the messages that we have prepared and in a very short amount of time have tried to draft something together and share it with our church family. Because as we think about those things that have happened, we want to discuss ways that we process through it. Ways that we as a church family can come together and ways that we can also serve our community together as well. The text that I chose to walk us through it at the Wassa campus is from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to that. I've got to tell you that this is a rather daunting task. Take an event that is um, probably unique to the history of Wassa. It's tragic. It's heavy. And we talk in the midst of that about God's comfort. And the guy realizes that it would be easy to get it wrong. On one hand, you have a desire to be true to God's word and the truth that it brings. But on the other hand, you want to communicate in a way that is tender and understanding and doesn't offend. So my prayer throughout this week, and I know the other uh, pastors in this area has been that as we discuss these things and we come together, that the truth of God's word would be the, the strength and the source of that comfort. This past week has affected different people in different ways. Um, some of us, quite frankly, have been maybe a bit more peripheral uh, to the events in some ways. But others, and I've talked to many people in this area we're very closely tied to the people involved, whether it be the people working on some of those scenes, or whether it be people who are in some way associated or related to some of the victims and their families. These are the families and the friends, the neighbors, the co-workers, the aunts, the uncles, the cousins. But no matter what the proximity of this event is to us, we have to know that sooner or later in our life, difficult things happen, things that have a profound impact on us. If this has been one of those situations in your life, or if it's something else even, I just want to extend our deepest condolences on behalf of Highland and its staff. Our responses to these things can be really varied. Sometimes our response is confusion. Why does this have to happen? Why? Sometimes it's anger. Sometimes it's a deep-rooted sense of sorrow. Sometimes it's fear. And sometimes it's even withdrawal. And I want you to know that whatever response that you've experienced in your life and in your family, it's okay. 
It's a natural part of the process that we go through when our community has been broken by uh, acts of violence. And when people that we know and people ourselves have been impacted by that, we don't have to feel guilty about feeling those things. But as we look today in our text, our discussion is not going to be focused on these responses. Instead, our focus is going to be on God and his presence in the midst of tragedy. And so if you would, uh, grab your Bibles. We're going to read through 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. As we look at this text, I think there's a number of very helpful things that we can draw out from it, things that we observe that we can apply to the context of tragedy in our lives. If you do an examination of the New Testament, you'll discover that the word comfort is used 31 times. And of those 31 times, almost a full third, 10 of those instances are used in these nine passages that we just read. There's no other passage of Scripture that has a higher concentration of this word comfort. And so this passage, we realize, is ultimately not about suffering, but it's ultimately about God's comfort and refining in the midst of suffering. Paul demonstrates this with his bookends that he has in this, in this passage. The first and the last verse. The first verse says, Blessed be the Father and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. In verse 11, You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Blessing the name of the Lord. That's not a phrase, that's not a word that instantly comes to our mind in the midst of tragedy. But Paul wants to make it clear that the focus is on God and the comfort that he provides rather than the focus being on our circumstances. Paul also mentions that God comforts us in all our affliction. It's not just the easy-to-stomach stuff. It's not just the little stuff. It's the last Wednesday in the Wasa area stuff. 
No matter what it is that we're enduring, no matter what it is, Paul says, God can bring comfort to that. In the first part of uh, verse 4, it says, God comforts us in all our affliction, uh, affliction, and we in turn can comfort people in any affliction. It doesn't even have to be the same trial. But Paul knows that the comfort that we receive is all-encompassing. It's comprehensive. It doesn't leave anything out. There's no exemptions. There's no small print. The comfort that God offers us is a total and complete comfort. Paul himself is really no stranger to suffering. The book of 2 Corinthians is one of Paul's most personal letters that he's written in all the New Testament. So as we look at Paul and the fact that he is a, is a man who suffers, we realize that he's not speaking about this hypothetically. He's speaking at it experientially. We know that Paul is hurting. We know that he is vulnerable, that he's raw. And like many of the books that he has written, many of the letters that he has written, his language is painfully honest. The Apostle Paul was a guy who was very intimately acquainted with suffering. Let me read again what he says about his own suffering in verses 8 and 9. It says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, probably Ephesus. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. We don't know exactly what Paul's affliction was in this case specifically. He talks a lot about um, some of the trials that he's endured. But he uses language that says that he despaired of life itself and that they had received, they felt that they had received a death sentence. The Greek phrase for utterly burdened uh, beyond our strength, the people in the original audience would have understood this in a couple of different ways. Uh, the first way may have been a pack animal that is so loaded down with the weight of its load that its legs are shaking and it can hardly stand up anymore. Or they have a picture in their mind of a, of a ship that's sailing on the oceans and it's so loaded down, there's so much weight on it that the, the waves are lapping against it and it's right on the edge of teetering, right on the edge of capsizing. It's barely staying afloat. It's a picture of Paul wearing a lead cape that's pressing him to the ground. And it's crushing him to the point that he feels like he can't even get up. That's the picture that Paul used. That's the Greek understanding of this phrase, utterly burdened beyond our strength. Some of us here might feel that way today. Some of us have felt like that in the past. There are circumstances in our life that feel like they're crushing us. But then Paul mentions the absolute necessity of the body of Christ. In verse 4, let me read that again. He says, God comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's this picture of God's family standing alongside each other, linking arms, praying together, wrestling through things together. And there are times that in our own life we have to receive this comfort. 
And there's other times that we provide this comfort. There are times that we feel the despair. We feel like, you know what, I don't feel like I can go on. I don't feel like I can endure this. And the body of Christ needs to come around them and surround them. And how can I be praying for you? How can I support you? And there's other times when we experience God's comfort in our own life. And God himself uses the body to say, you know what, look, I've been there. I know exactly what it's like. But let me just testify to the fact that God is good. And that his comfort covers all things. And he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. How can I be praying for you? That's the picture of the body of Christ. That's the picture of this mutual support that Paul is painting in verse 4. It's been so encouraging to see this played out in the Wasa area over the last several days. People standing alongside each other, helping each other, praying for each other. After the 8 o'clock service out in the uh, connection point, the lobby, I talked to one of the Wasa PD chaplains. And I just got to hear from him the ways that he was able to minister to some of the, the officers and public service individuals. And that he was able to sit with the families when they received some of the news that their loved one has been lost. And just hear him pour out his heart as he's poured out the heart of the Lord onto other people. I'm so thankful that we live in a community that's not divided. But comfort... Paul also points out, it doesn't always come right away. And furthermore, comfort is not always defined as a repairing of our circumstances. In verse 6, Paul says that we experience the comfort uh, of God when we patiently endure. Healing and comfort, they take time. Wounds don't heal overnight. It's through this patience, it's through this enduring, that Paul ultimately finds comfort. And he talks about that. But we can't miss the point that the comfort that Paul experienced was God's comfort, not merely a changing of his circumstances. Paul's focus and the source of that was from God himself. And the reason that this is so important is because, as we all know, Some of the darkest trials in our life are those circumstances that just simply cannot be restored. But it's then, and it's especially then, that we need to lean on God alone as the source of our comfort and the source of our strength. Paul then uh, answers a question that wasn't really asked But it seems to be this unasked question that's floating out there somewhere. Can God really comfort me? Who is this God that can do this for me? Who is this God that is able to take this crushing weight, this feeling of despair, and bring comfort to that? In verse 9, Paul answers this unasked question in this way. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. In other words, the answer to the question is that the God that's able to bring comfort is the God who's able to do the impossible. This is the God who raised Jesus from the dead, the one who spoke the cosmos into being, the one that redeemed us back to himself when we were hopeless. 
And so we look at the qualifying attributes of God, his omnipotence, his all-powerful nature is just one of many reminders that God can do the impossible. Because Paul couldn't have used much stronger language to describe his own suffering and anguish. And you get the sense that he's saying, you know what, I don't know what to do. This seems impossible to me. But God is the God who raises the dead. That's impossible. That's impossible. But for God. And that's the hope that Paul gives us as we read verse 9. I love what Isaiah 41.10 says to us. God says, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All the verbs in that verse apply to God doing that work on our behalf. And God is able, God is capable to comfort us and to bring us through those times through his unlimited power and his unwavering grace. The other thing that we can draw from this text I think is really the most important thing. It really binds all of these things together and that is the fact that our primary and our greatest hope is ultimately in Christ. God's perfectly created world became corrupted by sin. It's not just the, the, the naturally created world, but also the heart and, and humanity itself has been corrupted by sin. And in Romans 8, it talks about the fact that creation is longing for restoration and has been subjected to futility, but it's just longing for that day when it will be restored to its perfect state. And God promises that one day it will. But the other part of God's promise is that I'm going to start with a redemptive act in my people first. So while we wait for that one day restoration of the world, we can experience God's refining, redeeming work in our hearts and in our lives today. That's not something that we have to wait for. As we suffer the effects of this broken, fallen world, God encourages us to remember that this world is neither our hope nor is it our home. In his previous letter to uh, 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 19, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. It's a rhetorical comment. He knows that this life is not all there is. He knows that ultimately the hope that we have is in Christ. Have I, have you truly understood the fact that we are part of the creation that's been subjected to futility. Our relationship with God has been severed through sin. And that God, who is no stranger to suffering because he crushed his own son on our behalf so that we could be counted as free, we could be counted as righteous and forgiven, not only now, but for all of eternity. And that's applied through faith. That's applied by Trusting Christ as our Savior, his finished work on the cross, accomplishing that in us. God can do that today. And then we live out of that, looking for that blessed hope, that assurance that one day God is going to restore all things 
And we are going to be back into the full presence of his glory. But it has to start with faith in Christ and hope in him. God is not the purveyor of evil. He's not. He's the redeemer from evil. So what do we do with this? What are we to do? Because when tragedy and suffering and hardship presents itself in our life, oftentimes the first question we ask ourselves is, what can I do? You see, we're people of action and we're people that want to solve things. And in some setting, that's, that's really a good thing. We want to be part of the solution. We want to solve the problem and we want to be part of preventing the problem from recurring in the future. And we can certainly be active in a lot of different ways as we pray for each other and model a mindset of love instead of hate and separation as we share with others, most importantly, the hope that is in Christ. There's a tremendous, tremendous example of this. I just want to share uh, briefly with you guys. Um, a friend of mine who's a, also a pastor, he was talking um, on Friday, actually, to uh, Scott Sand. And as you know, he's um, one of the individuals who lost a spouse in this tragic event on Wednesday. Um, and uh, they sat down together on Friday, and as they were having this discussion, Scott said, I just want the congregations in our community to know, you know, this. And so all of us received an email outlining the conversation that these two had. And I just want to share with you for a little bit uh, some of um, the things that Scott Sand wants to share with um, Christian congregations in our community. The first person, the word I, refers to the pastor who is writing this email. And he says, I am sending this message at the request of Scott Sand, a dear friend of mine, as well as a brother in Christ, who lost his wife Sarah in the shootings that took place on Wednesday afternoon. Scott and I sat together at length today, that was Friday, as we talked about the situation. I'm thankful to God to say that he is truly pressing into the Lord in this trying time and is recognizing that God is asking him to stand up and speak up to ensure that our community is not torn apart by the outcome of this event. His request was that I pass along this to each of you in hopes that you could share with your congregations this Sunday that he is asking us as a community not to turn to hate or backlash over the events, but rather to forgive and turn to Christ for strength. He has chosen to forgive the shooter and is asking that we do not harbor hate in our hearts for what has been done. He asks that I make it known that he is only speaking for his family and cannot speak for the other families involved. He shared his heart and his faith and encouraged the community to pull together. He challenged his readers to not only use this as a reason, uh, to not use this as a reason to divide based on race, gender, or any other agenda that may take root out of the tragedy. His desire is to see that we stand firm and take up the whole armor of God and to realize that we truly do not fight against, against flesh and blood in these situations. He reminded me that all too often we get caught up in the headlines and articles and allow emotions to get the best of us. It is his hope that he can demonstrate what forgiveness looks like and that our community can come together and heal after this devastating event. In his words, this is what it looks like to be Wausau strong. What a powerful testimony of 2 Corinthians 1, 3-11 lived out in the life of someone that is right in the face of an unspeakable tragedy in his life. 
There are also um, other things that we can be doing. As Ken mentioned, that right after the service in room C1, we're going to have just a time of prayer to pray for all the things that um, are involved with the situation. You may have also heard that this evening there's going to be a, a candlelight prayer vigil held at Kennedy Park. Show up about 6.45, um, rain or shine. Looks like it's going to be rain, but prepare for that. As a community, coming, coming together, proclaiming the hope that's in Christ and bringing it before the Lord in prayer. But there's also times when God calls us to not do. To simply be still and trust and rest in God's comfort. In James 5.8, it says, Be still, establish your hearts. And the question then for all of us is, what am I establishing my heart on? Because it's at that point that I have a choice. I can establish my heart on my circumstances. I can establish my heart on my responses to those circumstances. Or I can ultimately establish my heart on Christ and the comfort that comes with being known by God and knowing God through Christ and the comfort that comes from God's strength alone. The word comfort comes from the Latin words with strength. In Greek, it means to come alongside and help. It's no coincidence that the Holy Spirit in John chapters 14 through 16 is referred to as the comforter. And what this means is that in times of hardship, we're operating from a position of strength. We're operating from a position of power, but it's not our own strength and it's not our own power. It's God's strength and God's power. It's the strength and power of the God who can do the impossible. One commentator said that God does not try to appease us or distract our attention from our troubles. No, he puts strength in our hearts so we can face our trials and triumph over them. In John 16, this is Jesus speaking. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. As we reflect on the hope that is in Christ, we're reminded of the words that God gave us at the very close of his, his word, the Bible, the second to last chapter of all the Bible. In Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, this is the hope that we look to. It says, God will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's the restoration of creation. That's just a little picture that God gives us. That one day, all the junk in our life is going to be gone, and God's going to restore it. In the meantime, in the meantime, church family, God says, have you allowed the blood of my son to redeem you so that you are part of my heavenly family, fixing our eyes on our heavenly eternal home and allowing that, the spirit that dwells in us as a result of that faith, to be the source of that strength, to be the source of that comfort, to be our portion 
to allow God to do the impossible in us when we could not possibly do with ourselves. That's what this passage is about. And that's what God is calling us to do, not only here, but in our community as well. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, we are truly beyond humble that you would um, allow people like us to be in relationship with you, restored through the blood of your Son. God, we continue to remember that um, all of our heart, all of our lives, all of our circumstances, Lord, are ones that you're aware of and that you are able to come into our lives and bring comfort and strength to. We continue to pray for uh, the situation in our community and anything else that people may be enduring in their lives right now. May this passage just be a reminder, Father, that there is hope, that there is comfort, and that you, God, desire to be our portion. I thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for your word. I pray if I said anything that's amiss or was misconstrued, Father, that you would just put it out of the minds of all of us because we ultimately want to be taught and fed by your word. So thank you for our time and thank you for your ever-present, ever-powerful presence in our life. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Great message for us this morning.